Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Yem Fergusberger is a proud Vietnamese refugee. With her family, she fled the persecution of Vietnam and has also battled serious debt in the business world. Today, she's the CEO of Berger Ingredients and the founder of Coco and Lucas, which is her new baby in the entrepreneurial world. In this episode, she beautifully and vulnerably unpacks her incredible story of her and her family fleeing Vietnam via boat, how she navigated life in the new culture of being here in Australia as a young girl, and how her ability to sell herself and her ideas has really launched her in her entrepreneurial journey. We talked about how she manages her busy life and her busy aspirations and her ideas, and Yem really comes back to both family and her faith. Sit back and enjoy this episode as Yem shares her extraordinary story with us. Yim, welcome to the studio. It's awesome to sit down and chat with you. Good morning. Thank you so much, Alison, for inviting me. Thank you very much. Oh, look, um, there's so much in your story. I, I want to unpack and kind of dive in with you. And you've just got such an extraordinary journey of even how you came to Australia as a refugee, mm-hmm. came with your family from from Vietnam and um, under very, very difficult circumstances found yourself in a camp in Indonesia um, Mm -hmm. for quite a while as a nine-year-old before knowing that you'll be able to come to Australia and live. Mm -hmm. I guess I just want to hone in on on that particular experience. Can you describe or do you remember what it was like realising that your family would be allowed into Australia? What was that like for you? Well, I came to um, when I, I remember vividly when I was around seven. It started at seven because that's when my parents were planning our escape. And it means that we have to give up the house that my parents have built for 1,080 nuggets. And it means that the dog will be left behind. And my grandmother who raised me and my uncle will be left behind because they didn't want to take the risk to come on the bird journey with us. So we know that we were the second last bird that was, um, that the, the officials regime in Vietnam will sort of turn a blind eye if we left the house behind that they'll let our boat go. And how it works is we have to get on a small boat first from Haiphong and then from that small boat, we get on another 50-metre boat that has 504 people. And my mum was part of the owner of the boat. And I think she was a very, very brave woman because she knew that none of her children could swim. And um, they have forecasted that we have just enough food, things like water, crackers, and little light snacks to get us through. There wasn't, like, um, room for us, so we were just sitting on a little space on the, on the, um, the, the boat floor. And, um, and I was, um, I had my hair cut really short so to make myself look like a boy. So because we knew that throughout the journey from Vietnam to the, to the nearest refugee island, there will be pirates. And we, did, we were intercepted by pirates on the second day. Malaysian pirates and 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 they 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 took all our gold, all our belongings, and I was scared. But I was I remember that my brother and I was hidden under the table, so we couldn't really see everything. And um, they they took two of my cousins over their boat, and we thought that they're going to rape them. But luckily, I think they ran out of time, so they gave the two cousins of my back. And shortly after that, there was the turbulence um, um, sea. Um, like it was, you know, we were so scared that our boat was nearly capsized. But luckily, we I remember we were praying and praying and praying a lot. And a few hours later, we, um, we, we saw another huge big boat and it's called Bologna and it saved us. And I, 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 um, to get from our small boat, we had to climb on these uh, leathers 
And I go, what if we fell off the ladder and couldn't swim and drown? But Did you have that thought at the time or was that uh, sort of in hindsight afterwards? In hindsight. Yes. <laughs> and um, how um, I got on the ladder is we, I was holding on to my brother's shoulders on like a piggyback and he climbed on those ladder, which I remember it was about four metres to climb into the big boat and they saved us and they took us to the nearest island called Galang Galang. Did you have an experience, I guess, as a seven-year-old of what a massive journey that was or was it more that this is what the family was doing and we're all kind of doing it together? When I was young, I was a quiet child and very obedient and I just did what my parents asked me to do. Uh, I was only very upset because I couldn't be with my grandmother anymore Um, and I just... The way I think is she's my mother um, and my father wasn't very happy to, to leave because he was worried about the, the safety of the swimming and getting drowned and his family didn't want him to leave. But I knew my mum is a strong woman and she just wanted the best for us because when she was back in Vietnam, she had a very successful butchery business but that always caused problems to her every day. It wasn't uh, for us, we couldn't live there because it was like a jail, you have no freedom. So mum wanted freedom for us. And when I went back to Vietnam 10 years ago and I see how the people live in Vietnam in my country town and how my mum left the house back, it's actually a very small price to pay to have the freedom in Australia. It's such an interesting kind of insight because I, yeah. I guess I was wondering, like you, you're now a mum of, yes. of two daughters, um, you know, and I guess with this amount of, of hindsight and where you're at with your daughters, can you go back and think about, because your mum obviously made it, that's such a courageous decision, um, such a strong decision and, yes. and yet obviously a very focused, determined one. You know, yeah, do you look back at that, at what your mum did for you and your brothers and sisters and your family as as a courageous act? Is that something that you would have done? Can you understand that decision she made? I understand because I think as I get older, I do become like my mum. Um, we all do, I, I think. <laughs> yes, like I become like her as my mum has a few traits. Like my mum is, she doesn't overanalyse things. Uh, because I believe that because she probably feels if you overanalyze things, then you get cold feet and you won't go ahead with it. So she has, if she's interested in something or she wants to plan something and she thinks it's good for the family, and I adapt her personality because I know my mum's got inner fire in her and the way she works is she makes a decision. That decision is going to be good for the family to adapt to the change and if we do stuff up, we just fix it. We improvise with it. So, uh, and and I, I noticed that I make those decisions in my life, in my personal life, um, the way I teach my kids, I bring up my kids, um, and the way I make business decisions because I don't always make the right decision. And, and even if you make a decision and it's wrong, you improvise and you fix it, it makes you learn and it makes you more resilient. So so I actually like, I would do what mum do, but what I wouldn't do how my mum is, if, if I was going to put 30 kids on the, the, the boat, at least we're all safety, floaty. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yeah, so things like, you know, I was so tra- traumatised from my, my, my experience on the boat that I still have a problem swimming in open sea now. Because I was so worried that um, because it's it's very common out of the ten boats to escape from Vietnam, four of them sink. Mm. Oh, sometimes, and in, in our culture, they have a lot of gold teeth, and if they want to take the gold teeth from your mouth and you don't give to them, and sometimes they throw you overboard. Right. A lot of people die. So I, I I'm I'm saying like. Open sea water still scares me now, and that was it's something, very real. yeah, something that I need to overcome. So it is, um, and and another thing that I did different to my mum now is the first thing as soon as I have the two kids, they start swimming at four. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just automatically a conscious decision to do, like because of the the past of my experience has triggered to me to do certain things I do today. 
Yes. Yeah, yes. fascinating. And, and yeah. fascinating insight 10 years ago to go back and go, actually, yes. that was, that was whilst it was a brave decision, it was actually a really obvious decision yes. um, for your mum to actually yes. go, we need to leave, we need to yes. not be here anymore, we're actually in prison. Mm-hmm. And freedom, as hard as mm-hmm. and traumatic and uncertain as that is, is actually the only decision we have. Mm-hmm. So you got on the big boat um, on the back of your brother's shoulders yes. and, and went to an Indonesian refugee camp. How long were you there? Uh, we arrived there um, all wet. There wasn't um, houses for us. So um, the first, when I arrived there, I remember mum had a few gold left. So she, straight away, the entrepreneur of her coming out, so she started bartering with the the um, Indonesian uh, um, locals. So she gave them gold and say, in return, I want a, a, um, a boat of food. So she had enough food for the family the first two weeks. And then after that, we were put into a longhouse. So a longhouse is where you have um, uh, an open house. So the only privacy is a curtain. And there's about five families. We stayed there for 15 months before we were granted visas. And my, my journey on the island was probably one of the best because I was very naive so my joy every day was hang around with my cousins. We bath in the lake. We uh, catch a lot of little crabs and um, fish. And, uh, you know, you play with your stick and stone. And um, you, I went into the forest a lot to pick fruits. And we did a lot of mischievous things. Uh, that was a knife eve of my childhood. But the other part is there was malaria and kids were dying. When I hear stories that kids are dying every two hours, it sounds a bit made up, but when you see it in front of your eyes, it's really a true story. And it happened to my nephew, Jonathan, who had malaria, but he was so lucky he didn't die from it. Right. Yes, we thought he was going to die from malaria. And um, the other thing I also remember on the island in my longhouse is one of the family um, tore us down. Um, they were not granted visas because he had um, uh, ep- epilepsy. And when you have a sickness, you're not, you can't be granted visa to go to another country. And the tragic happened that he committed suicide. Mm, so I saw my first suicide at eight years old right. because he thinks that he was a trouble to his family. Mm. So he decided to take his life. So they are free from him and then they can be granted visas to go to America. Mm. So What uh, a picture, I guess, you're describing. In, in one hand, you know, it's, the, it's a playground for you. It's the joy yes. of discovery of a yes. child and there's other children around with you. And then on mm. the other hand, there were moments where you're really struck by by the humanity and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I guess, lack of hope, I guess, in, a, in a, some of those circumstances. So the day yeah. that you and your family were granted a visa to Australia, what was that like? That was like winning a lottery because when you're on an island and you get food rations from the Red Cross, uh, it is very generous but it's also not enough. So mum, my mum always find something else to do. Oh, she will sell, um, she opened a little tiny cafe. So she was selling um, iced coffee and, you know, things that she make. Oh, she's always, she she started selling fruit from 12 years old. So she always sell coffee, fruits and other things to give get extra for the family. Because when you're giving food from the Red Cross, it's a certain aberration of rice. And that's why now I can't eat any more sardines <laughs> and ham spam right. and canned fruit because that's what we always get, rice, canned fruit, sardine and... Um, spam. Spam. <laughs> so uh, just little things like that. I, I never forget. But, you know, it's also Red Cross. Um, I would always, if I have an opportunity, I always give to the Red Cross because they save us for 15 months. Mm. You know, so um, the, the the story how we got granted visa in Australia is my uncle, he is my mum's stepbrother and he's an amazing, amazing man. He passed away um, probably about eight years ago. He um, is my mum's elder stepbrother. He had eight children. From his eight children, he asked them to sponsor five families in Indonesia. 
and that's how we were granted the Australian uh, visa because they sponsor us. Right. Yeah, and my first, my first, um, my first uh, step into, and then we 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 actually uh, we went to Singapore, stay there for a month, mm-hmm. and that's how I have my love affair with Singapore because Singaporean people are so honourable, they're so trustworthy, and they're so nice. And I remember a lot of um, ladies came to our camp to give us a lot of things, and I knew straight away when you're in Singapore. It's a country that you can't steal. So they always say to us, whatever you do, we take to the city. But their law is if you steal, you get your hand chopped off. Yes, yes. So I know that straight away, like little things that happen in my life that I don't forget because of the people that tells you the law. And when I came to Australia, I landed in Wollongong. And I stayed in um, Fado Meadow um, Hostel in Wollongong. Right. Yes. And what was that like? Was it a new, was it like a complete another world as a child? Was it, um, was there a sense of this is the new start? Um, Because when, you know, when you come to Australia, you go, oh my God, all these big buildings, it's a big city, I'm very excited. And then again, you uh, you know, I was putting Longhow now is another hostel. But this time it had proper rooms and proper bathroom. But there was another cultural shock because it's the first time in my life where I had Caucasian food and I've never seen a sausage in my life. (laughs) So every morning, you know, we have sausage rolls, sausages and um, cereal, which we, because our, our cuisine is eating noodles or you know, savoury things in the morning. So the food is a big part of my family culture and uh, the only culture shock for me at that time is the food. You know how you get served breakfast, lunch and dinner because uh, when we first started there, we didn't, um, I, I can't really remember, there was probably a small kitchen, but in the beginning we had to eat what was provided. So it was like a camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we stay there for three months and then we move into um, Punchbowl in a three-bedroom house with 15 people. Right. And, and my first bed was from the Salvation Army. Um, it, was, it wasn't a bed, but it was a mattress, single mattress, and I shared that with my brother. Right. And some, some, um, um, some family members had rooms to share and some were sleeping in the lounge. So we just have to make ends meet, really. But I think, like, like I said, when I was young, I was very obedient. I didn't complain because I just accepted it. This is what was happening. This yes. is how you're going. And I remember you'd, I've, I've read that you described, obviously, you, couldn't, you didn't speak English at the time. That was yes, something that you learned when you English, arrived. Yes. And, um, and going to school was, was a big cultural shock from yes. um, even just from that awareness that all of a sudden that I'm someone different. Yes. I look different. I sound yes. different. I can't really understand or, or mm. communicate with people and that that was a really tough time yes. for yourself. Um, yes. And did you share that that experience with your siblings? Were they going through the same same kind of hardship, I guess, of this uh, new culture? Uh, my siblings, when they came to Australia, they didn't have time to also learn English. They probably learn English in the evening after their work. So we, um, uh, uh, um, when my brother told me when he went to look for a job, <laughs> he got chased by a dog, for example, because he, he was walking to the job that he he um, applied for. But the beautiful thing about in the 80s is you can look for jobs, three jobs in a day because there were so many jobs. So I was, again, like, you know, we weren't taught to go home and share what happened really bad at school. I didn't understand why I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want them to worry. And even if I was struggling at school, I know that I was capable, but when I was stuck, I couldn't say to them, oh, can you get me a tutor to help me? And little things like the bullying, because back in the 80s, it's not so accepting. And I was short and I was small. And I probably they probably laughed at me because I brought my sandwich in the back instead of glad grab. You know, just little things like that. And when you don't speak English properly, they also tease you. And um, and 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 I I always had this girl. She always bullied me and hit me across the head because she wanted fifteen cents and I didn't have the fifteen cents. You know, mm. but back then fifteen cents is a lot. 
And the the most thing that I kind of feel sorry for myself when I was young is I had two eggs. But I would never say to my parents, can you take me to the dentist? Because I know they couldn't afford it. So I always waited. There there was a time in a year where you had the free dentistry at school. So I waited to then to have my teeth done. So if one of my teeth was sort of like um, um, shaken and, and about to fall off, my mum and dad would try to help me take it off instead of taking me to the dentist. Right. And I think just little things like that, it just makes you not become so... That's why I'm not precious. I'm very easygoing because the way I look at life is be um, logic, be realistic, just get it done. That it's quite practical, practical. And, it, and it sounds like you had quite an awareness at the time about yes. what was possible, what wasn't. Yes. Don't don't complain about what yes. what's just not possible and just That's what are right. the ways to get through it. And you talk, I guess you describe that a lot of that time really taught you resilience. Yes. it's um, um, Very it's, strongly. Yes. And I, I know that everyone's got a refugee journey like me, but I think because I've never discussed it, with my parents. I never complain to my parents. I never tell them how I feel. Um, but all those times, really, when I look back now, it really shaped me who I am, who I'm made of today, because it, I didn't realise that it built the, the, the strong person I am or, or, or the resilience I have, the fire that I have. And just, it makes me, it helped me if I had a problem, I can get over the hurdles much easier than others because I've been um, prepped with it. It was instilled in, in me to, to just, you know, the decisions in my life. It, it really makes me who I am. Like, um, I, I, for example, like when I didn't finish school and how I got a job, like even my first job. How did you get your first job? I, I just bluffed my way through it because I left year 10. So the first, like my first job is I love to, uh, my first job is working at the markets, you know, for 10 hours for $50. I didn't know how to sell clothes, but I just pretend that I know everything about clothes and they hire me. So just little things when I'm going home in the evening, I just know how to look after myself. I'll friend someone who's older than me that I can trust so I can go on the train home with her and be safely walking home. Just little things like that. I learned to be street smart. Mm-hmm. And then my next job was working at a, um, a duty-free. And I knew how to teach myself that if I was nice to the owners and be obedient and willing to learn and have a can-do attitude and do more than what I was asked, people are more open to open the door for me and teach me more. And that was my first professional job was working in the duty-free. And her name was Maha. She was really, really nice. And, uh, and then I one day I saw a job in the newspaper for a cosmetic consultant. And I go, that's my dream job. And I rang them and I said, oh, can I apply for the job? And they said, no, 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 I, I, the job has 13 applicants and it's Friday afternoon, it's too late, we don't want to take any more applicants. And I said to her, but you haven't seen me what I look like or what I can offer or what my resume is, so how could you say no to me? I said, you have 13 applicants, if you take another one's 14, and I promise you that you need to give me 10 minutes, maximum 20 minutes, if I'm in the interview and you're not happy with me, then ask me to leave. And they said, all right, come in. And I actually got the job over the other 13 girls. Amazing. How great is that? It's almost like yes. selling yourself. Yes, because I said to her, you know, um, that, that's what it is. I said to her, you've got tw- you have nothing to lose. You've got that 20 minutes. If you're not happy with me, then ask me to leave. So she... I, I, I sold it to her. I love it. And if you can sell that, then you can sell cosmetics. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Fantastic. So you got your dream job. Yeah, my dream job, cosmetic. And um, in that job, I I was launching a lot of fragrance. So I launched um, fragrances from Kevin Klein to Georgia Beverly Hill, White Diamonds, and I got to meet Oscar de la Renta. And that's where I knew all about all my designers. And I, um, but I just realised that besides me learning about the epidermis of the skin and the product knowledge of fragrances and the different categories and just sitting there spraying and selling, I realised that after two years, I become consultant of the year. 
actually the first year I became consultant of the year for New South Wales. But I think I needed something a bit more, but I was always unsure, Yimi, are you being unrealistic and asking for a bit more? Because I didn't have that high education of, I just finished year 10, so I think that I wasn't worthy to ask for more. You know, because... So I became the um, 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 manager counter for the fragrance side and, and then my next job was applying for a job at Giorgio Armani. And I didn't. I realised how much they were going to pay me and I go, no, I can't work for 28000 for the entire year. So I didn't take that job and I just go, you're just going to sit there and look pretty. I go, I'm a bit more than that. So I went into Optus as an international operator. And when I was an international operator, I learned so much about Country Co and speaking to so many different people around the world. And my next break, I worked there for two years and I find it again a bit robotic and the, the shift work was, so it means I have no social life because I could be working afternoon shift, night shift and day shift. And I didn't know exactly what days I have off. It's two days a week, but it could call on the weekdays or Sunday. So it was very hard to have any, per, um, it was hard to have a social life or balanced life. So um, I was approached to um, take this job as a PA to a national manager. And that time, um, um, Alison, I didn't even know how to do an attachment to an email. <laughs> But somehow, but you've been through some hard stuff before, some hard so stuff. I can learn that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, he gave me the job over more qualified people than I did. And luckily my boss went on a holiday to Santorini and Greece for six weeks. So I, I, I got that six weeks to learn quickly. So I started friending the, the people that were sitting next to me, my neighbour, people in IT, people who are, um, you know, project manager, reporting analyst, I just asked them, how do I do this and who, how do that? And when he came back, he sent me to a few evening courses. And I think I was always a, a, a person who was eager to learn. He obviously saw that. Yeah, so, so he started teaching me about cost centres. And, um, you know, he teach me more and more every day. So I think I love my, my corporate job has helped me in my current role in my current business because, and I think it helped me because I think corporate discipline is important because you can be a crazy entrepreneur, you have a brilliant idea, but if you don't know how the foundation, solid foundation of how corporate works, it's dangerous because whether you have a small business, a medium business, a large business or corporate business, it's run like a corporate but on a smaller scale. So corporate has taught me how to be disciplined. So I learn about cost centres. I learn about business plan. I learn all the acronyms like SLA, so service level agreement. And I learn about the ombudsman. I've learned about um, HR. Because even if you have a small business, you need to have proper HR in place. Mm. I learn about admin. And I learn about teamwork. And I learn about respect. And I learned the most important thing, which is finance. And that's how I incorporate all that discipline into my business. So I'm saying to myself, you can have a crazy idea. You, have, you can do your research with the market and you have a product that no one has, but you need to have system in place that's robust. So learning, yeah, all of that is the platform that you yes. now use and, and the basics and the fundamentals that it sounds yes. like you, you come back to um, and that you have a combination of the two, that you've got this entrepreneurial, yes. you're a grand thinker yes. um, and I want to unpack that a little bit later because you have some big, big goals. You don't, you don't think small. Mm -hmm. um, but that it also has to come from from having this base. So you're working as an EA, you're, you're kind of absorbing and learning mm -hmm. and uh, getting exposure to such different areas. Mm -hmm. um, and then you went on later to become the CEO of your business. Yes. Berger. Berger Ingredients. Berger Ingredients. What was that journey between from EA to CEO for you? Yeah, so that will also bring me back that I worked as an EA for four years. Um, I left a month before I had my first baby, Sophia, 
And I, I, I have to say the first year was a bit hard for me because all I've done is work, work, and now I've become this mother. And how much can I take the kid to the park? And then, you know, so that's where the first two years I, be, I, I, I focus on being a very, very good mother. And, and, and then when I was at home, the, the, when, and then I had my second baby. So I decided to actually go back to work after Coco was only six months. And I worked only two days a week to help my sanity. To, you know, I have to be up to date with the, the workforce. And, um, and then my husband, he was very generous. He was, you know, he's giving me a salary for a part-time job, 200000 So with me again, I never was one of those type of people that I always, I've been taught since I was five to save for my rainy days. So when my husband gave me that salary, I saved it, but he didn't know that. I stashed it away. Like, I save every single dollar I have. I actually even invested more so I can get more money out of the 200. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when Coco... So you were working with your my husband My husband, but yeah. I didn't play an important role because he had all managers and GMs in place and it was very man-dominated. Mm-hmm. So they just go, you know, Yimmy's an EA. What, what are, is she going to add value to a business that's turning over $27 million? So I was working in finance and customer, you know, PR and stuff like that, but I didn't play an important role. So I remember Coco was two. Then my husband, um, you know, the business, we lost the whole business and it was due to the financial crisis. It was the GFC. It was due to bad management. It was due to two major clients that owe us over three million didn't pay us. And it was another thing where we we grew. We lost the business because we had an eight million dollar contract. And to have that eight million dollar contract, we have to move to new building. So we bought this twenty thousand square meter building that also crippled our cash flow. Because the cost of the deposit to to buy the, the commercial building, fix it, transfer $6 million of goods from one place to another and there was interruptions to the business. So everything fell apart and that is something that, you know, the, the buck stopped with us. Doesn't, is, life doesn't prepare you for yeah, that though, does it? Yeah, and it doesn't prepare. Yeah. So how did I start the ingredients? I knew that I had a letter from the bank to say, you know, you need to get out of your house by the 28th of November 2009. What did that feel like when you opened that letter? For me, I can lose anything in my life, but there's two things. There's one thing I don't like losing is my house. I'm, I'm a person that's very, I love my house. But, of course, I took, I didn't take it very well. I was shaken. I was speechless. But, again, uh, that obedient in me, that I accepted it. So I move on. So I move, I have so much pride that I move out of months before before, you know, the, the actual day. And I, I, I started burger ingredients out of necessity. I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant. And I said to my husband, you know, all those years that you, you, you give me the money, Verna, I actually didn't spend it. I saved it. I saved like over 800000 And back then I also owe my family money as well, about 900000 And I had, and, and I knew that my mum and dad, how they have money is they always buy gold. Because gold is, gold and property is two things I like to invest because land is always worth money. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how old it is, anywhere in the world. And the thing is gold is a piece of thing that you can sell anywhere in the world. So and I had a lot of precious jewellery that I can sell. So I was selling paintings, jewellery, whatever it is that I had to sell to set up a new business. And, and, and how I started, um, Alison, is not because my dream back then was, oh, I'm going to have be this great entrepreneur and I'm going to be successful. It was, like I said, survival. Let's work really hard, build something. And what I've done is create a tribe in my family. I, 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 I negotiated with my family to work with me. I said to them, if you want your money back, you need to work with me. And the first three months means we're not going to get paid. You're just going to get food. 
Sounds like a great deal. Yes, <laughs> and then I, my mum has to um, put her mortgage on um, for 500000 for me. And, um, you know, I built, I, 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 I don't know what happened to me, but I found this, this 2000 um, building, commercial building, and I said to my husband, that's the one I want. Because I don't want, I, I, I want, I don't want to be backyard operator. I want to work professionally. This is what the business is going to look like. So I just create an ABN from home. I rented property that I rented when I lost the home, and I, I rented the property, and everything was hard for me, um, Melison, even just to get reference for my my rented property, and um, just getting my my first doll that my husband and I have never asked in 37 years in Australia. I don't know why they gave us such a hard time because we've made pay millions and millions of dollars in tax. But, you know, the Centrelink just wouldn't help us right. yeah. at all. So and, you put and this vision to your family and said, this is what I want to do. Yeah, we, and they want to do. We can make this, but I need you to come and yeah, help. give of your time. Yes, and, the, and, and help they helped me. me. And we, 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 we took the, the, um, the rental loan, uh, the rental of the uh, the building, and um, it was 18700 And my family said, Jimmy, that's ridiculous. You're crazy. You haven't got one customer. And I said, well, I have a plan because I can say to the landlord that that building is brand new. It's been sitting there for 12 months. So if they give me six months rent free, and that's because I knew that it takes six to nine months to build up the racking and the, the machines and the blending machines and the forklifts and the different blending rooms and packing rooms and QA rooms and, you know, the computer setup IT of Jiva, I know that will take anywhere between six to nine months. So that's why I asked for that nine months rent free, but they only gave me six. So the last three months I had to sell more things to fund it. And I have to say I've been very, very blessed in my life to have mentors where they will fund me as I go. So just am about to pay for the racking, they will lend me more money. And the beautiful thing is they never ask me when I'm going to pay it back. But I always give them a letter to say when I'm going to pay it back and how I'm going to pay it back. And the other touching thing is one of my employees, he worked for my husband 21 years and he was working for the company that took over my business. He, he was my husband's right-hand person. He left that job and he came to us and took a $20,000 pay card to work for us. And he he also took our $50,000 from his mortgage to help us as well. So, you know, I have been very lucky with the people in my life and the people that helped me are the ones that never asked me for any help. So that's even more beautiful. It's that connection and uh, yeah. we were talking off mic even right at the start, just how important family and, and people you trust around you. Yes. I wanted to ask you because one of the things that, or one of the themes that often comes up, um, you know, I often talk to people about how do you live these big grand lives but in a really busy world. And uh, I know there are times where people find it hard to ask for help. There's almost this sense that if you want to do something, you have to do it all and don't burden anyone else along the way. Um, and yet what's so beautiful about your story is that you have reached out, you've sold a vision to your family mm-hmm. um, with, in the short term, zero certainty that it's actually going to work, mm-hmm. um, but but a big vision and a drive and, and the work ethic, I think, that sits behind that. And then what you've just beautifully described is, you know, friends and, and old work colleagues actually investing not only their time but, mm-hmm. but also their money in, into this vision as well. Yes. What's helped you... Um, or what advice would you give to others about the way of how important it is to ask for help? I think before you you ask for help, you need to think carefully and ask. Don't ask for ridiculous help. And is your help makes sense and has substance? And it has to be worth it to ask for the help. Don't ask for little things that doesn't make any sense. If you can do something yourself, try to do everything, absorb all your positive to do yourself. But the help that I ask for, I think when you get to a stage in your life where you can't have too much pride or too, you have to put all your ego aside because you need to save your family. And for me, I need to wake up every single morning and I will ask for help. And I don't feel shame because at the back of my mind, um, I believe in karma. 
So I always promise and I pray and I said, you know, if I ask for this help, I will re- return the favor. Maybe not one year, two years, and even more. So all the people that helped me, I have returned the favor back. You know, if I ask for a certain amount of money, that person needs to be assured that this is when I'm going to pay them back and how I'm going to pay them back. And you need to honor your word. So if you're saying to someone, can I borrow 20000 I'll pay you back in June. You pay them back in June, but my style is always pay them a week earlier to show good faith mm. and always stick to your word. So it doesn't matter how hard it is, you need to stick to your word and on your word and return it. So I asked for a lot of help in the beginning too so I can get back on my feet. And when you ask for help, you also need to be respectful that you don't go and start living a lavish life. So for the first five years, I didn't pay myself anything. We, we, I pay Vernon and I together as a wage, 45000 So that's not a lot. That's about 22500 per person. And then back in 2016, the people that I asked for help, I pay them all back, plus a bit of interest as a goodwill. Mm-hmm. And um, but this, um, so with my family, I I I knew that my mum bought her first house in 1987 at Punchbowl. Mm. Uh, that house is like a heirloom house. So I know that mum didn't, and I pay off. You know, the five hundred thousand I pay that house off. I paid it off. I paid off that house that I borrowed mum. And I know my mum bought that house in 1987, 435000 So I offered my mum 10 times the amount and I put, you know, a lot of money in the account for mum so she's comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I turned around and I said to my mum, even though I bought it, to keep it as a family where one day that everyone can come there and visit, but you still live there, it's like your house. But in return, I asked my mum to give all my siblings all the money that I paid for 1.3 million to my, 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 all my five siblings so they can buy property. So I have actually returned the favour tenfold. Hmm. So I do ask for help, whether it's um, someone in the street or someone who's my family or someone's my friend. But I think it's just um, common sense. You, you have to be grateful, you have to be appreciative, you have to have say thank you. And and I learned that if you're wrong, you have to say sorry, and you 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 need to acknowledge the people who are kind to you, and be sincere about it, you know, and and really respect them, be grateful forever, um, and 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 return the favor, but much more, and be classy about it. I love that. Be classy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And know there will come a time where that yeah. that generosity can can kick back in again. Again, before we we jumped onto Mike, we were talking a little bit about that the time when you were in a rental property and you were just describing, you know, paying yourself a pretty minimum wage yourself and your husband. Um, but really, your mindset, and I love the way that you framed it up. You actually said we d- we just got into a swap it type lifestyle. Yes. Can you unpack that a bit for me of, of what that that mentality was that kind of helped you and your family. Yes, because when I was looking at some government site where it teaches you how to eat healthy and it teaches you that you can not um, starve yourself to starvation, but you just swap the way you eat your food to become a healthy person. And all of a sudden I applied that concept to my personal life. So when we lost everything and we have very little budget to work with, I decided to swap my life without compromising the little funds that I have in my life. So in, in the past, I've, I had a lavish lifestyle where, you know, I stay at a five or six-star hotel, um, travel business class. So I just um, stopped going overseas. So, for example, we used to see Verna's mum every year from Austria. So what we have instead is we, it's more cheaper for her to come to Australia. So instead of paying four tickets to Austria, she only paid one to come to Australia. So instead of staying in a five-star hotel, we went camping. And for my kids, they just go, they don't really mind because one's a pool and the other one's a lake. So they're still swimming. <laughs> and for them, it's more open because you're, you're with the raw beauty of nature. And I think I also learned that then you start sitting under the tree and you just start to realise, hey, this is beautiful. The sky is beautiful, the birds, the, the trees and the water. And I think it makes you more down to earth 
it makes you not take things for granted. And it, you know, it's not about material things in life that makes you happy. Because I just really think as long as you have your husband, your family, your brothers and sisters, your children, and you're healthy, and you have a function in mind, and you've got two hands to work, then that is also success and happiness. You're also a very driven person, and you've got a new, um, for want of a better word, entrepreneurial baby that yes. you're working with at the moment. So you're, you have a brand, Coco and Lucas. Yes. Uh, that you are, you have launched and mm-hmm. have big aspirations for in both the Australian market but also in the global global market. Where did the idea of Coco and Lucas come? and what is it? Just so Coco Lucas is, um, I've always, you know, when I had two babies and I went shopping, I, I in, in the retailers I can never find food that I, I feel safe or trust to feed my children. And I just think, you know, how many mums out there who is time poor but they're not just after a brand, they're after something that they can trust. So I have a daughter named Coco and she's a very fussy eater and she wanted everything to be, you know, nicely plated, uh, immaculately cut and just made with a lot of love and cleanliness. And the other thing that also is my, um, the, the, the other hero of the brand is Lucas, and Lucas is my great-nephew. So when he was born, his mother, Jessica, didn't know why he had all these rashes, skin allergies, he was losing weight, and he was crying all the time. And, um, you know, being Asians, we don't know what lactose-free or gluten-free mean. So we, he went to see um, a pediatrician, pediatrician and he was diagnosed that he can't eat gluten, lactose, lupin, seed, egg and nuts. And that's left his mum with very little to buy for him. And I just think, you know, um, food makes you happy. It brings people together. And I just really think it's torture when you can't eat what you want. So with Coco Lucas, it wasn't, it was born out of, again, um, um, a problem that I'm trying to solve. So, and I also, the other thing behind it is I very love Australia. Like I love my country. Vietnam is my motherland and Australia is my fatherland. So I just feel Australian has given my family a good life. It has given us freedom. It has given us a second chance in life to rebuild our life. And I said, what can I do as a human? Because as a young child, I always want to, have equity, to give back, to have a legacy, to have a f- footprint. And I, I just wanted to feed Australian kids across Australia, whether they, you know, Vietnamese or Australian or Chinese. I want everyone to eat my food. And it took me one year to develop the range. And I de- developed the range gluten-free, lactose-free in dedication to Lucas. And the other part was for Coco, how she's a fussy eater, discerning eater. And I, I just took out all the classics of what Australian kids love to eat. And it was born out of, not because of profits or dollars. It was purely born because I just love everything about the brand. Like I, I, I look at things like demographic growth. I looked at being socially and environmentally biodegradable packaging. I looked at balanced diet, like, you know, carbs, veggies and meat content. So we, and then I looked at obesity and I looked at um, food intolerances, mum's time poor. And I know that I, I wanted a brand that is premium, but at the end of the day, it's about the price. And I, I am mindful of every single mum out there that I always make sure that it's $5.00. So everyone can afford it. So it's this brand is is built out of, you know, the the surrounding and the inspiration of my family. It's with a lot of love. So that's how it's it's um it's born. And now it's in um Woolworths Victoria, in the high-end stores of About Life, Harris Farm, Richie's Romeo's. And then last night I have the announcement to launch in Perth, which is another tiny stores. So, you know, it, it's going to be, it will take time to to be ranged nationally. So now I'm in going to be in Perth, 
Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia. So the only presence I haven't, um, I'm not in is Northern Territory, Brisbane, and Tasmania. That's coming. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exciting, and yeah. you must be excited to see what's there. And I know, yeah. um, and again, we were talking before just about your yeah big plans to yes. to get to those centres and and get it across. Yeah. So definitely um, encourage people to look up Coco and Lucas, and if it's in your area, yes. then uh, then make sure you go and find that because I'm definitely one of those kind of time poor mums that yeah. <laughs> has fussy fussy eaters. So I will yeah. certainly be looking out for it. So life's busy, even amongst all your aspiration and and goals. How do you I guess, look after yourself in your own busy life? What's what's some of your own kind of strategies? What works for you? For me, um, you know, like after all the journeys that I've been through and, you know, some people find it relaxing to go and get their hair done. But for me, I have the same hairstyle for the last uh, <laughs> 46 years. So it's um, low maintenance. I'm a low maintenance when it comes to, you know, um, getting dressed up or getting my hair done or my nails done. So I don't really need to have those things to chew out. So for me, is my sanity. And I, I find that my faith has given me that sanity and that peace and that tranquil and the balance. So for me, I think meditation. And um, last year, I met a little monk on the plane. And he was only nine years old. And I said to him, he said to me, you know, I, I, I train myself to um, where I can look very far and very deep. And I said to him, but you have to, um, you know, you have to pray three times a day, like 6.30, 12.30 and 6.30 in the evening. And as a little child like yourself, how do you do it? And he taught me. He said to me, you just close your eyes, you go into a dark room, you meditate and You'll be surprised that if you just let everything go and make yourself light like a feather, you become a new person. And he said to me, sometimes some of the things that you worry and stress over, it's not even going to happen like that. So when you worry so much and stress over something that is so small or big, sometimes it's best to take a deep breath, meditate, have your body very light like a feather, and let it go. And I think when you open your eyes again, I really believe, and it's proven, you know, nothing really, really good stays forever. And nothing really awful or really bad is 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 forever either. So when you ha- I have a bad day, um, my father taught me to take a deep breath, be calm, and don't respond badly when you're emotionally. The best is to say thank you, walk away, and, and, and you know, fix it later. Because, um, like I said, you know, when I had that huge big knot in 2009, I knew that I have to unknot it and I have to solve it slowly. Because if you're impatient, you try to solve it, it doesn't work. So it takes, when I said slowly, it means five years of solving solving it. Like, Unpick it slowly each day, each month, each year. And it took me five years. And I'm very happy with that because I did it the right way and I made mistakes along the way. But I've actually still kept and I still kept and I still have my reputation. And reputation is very important to me, you know, to to have this vision of to be an honourable person, a trusted person, a good reputation, my grandparents taught me is very important. So how, how would I say it, it's all about peace and tranquil and meditation and learn to let go? Yeah. It's huge. And I'm sitting yeah. here going, oh, yes, I want some of that. So yes. <laughs> we'll give it a go myself. Yeah. Look, I can't um, have you in studio and not ask you a question about fashion because I think you're one of the most fashionable people I've ever met. Um, and you have gorgeous photos that you put up of uh, dresses and designers. Um, what? Where does that come from and what does that give to you, I guess? Yeah, so um, my mum is a, uh, a butcher. And um, my father is a tailor. So my father is um, a tailor back home in, um, in Vietnam. And he's a very renowned tailor because he makes clothes to fit people, like, exclusive to them, like a one-off. 
And when I was young, I had a few uh, fashion mishaps, and my father taught me about fashion. And he taught me that when you buy things, it's less, less is more. He taught me about color tones. He taught me about quality, um, the attention of detail of the workmanship of a garment. And um, I love fashion. And so I remember when I was about 12, I had $10. So how am I going to stand out with all these other kids with all these expensive dress? So instead of going to Target or Kmart and get a dress for $10, I went to the op shop. And that's how my, my fashion started. Because I I, if I had $10, I can still buy a dress for $3 and a shoe. And I can <laughs> and buy... And a necklace. And yeah. a necklace. <laughs> and, and that's when I started to love my scarves for my hair. So I, I said my hair is very boring straight. So what, what I'm going to do to stand out? So I started buying hats, scarves and turbans. And that's my signature look. And like I said, you know, colour coordination and I don't follow rules. I can mix something that's designer label with a quirky vintage item. Um, I think it's good to be um, electric, like have a bit of fun, don't take yourself too seriously. And, um, you know, but I, ha- I have two personalities. So when I'm with friends, I dress more quirky, a bit crazy. But my father has always taught me when I'm in a business meeting, I have to dress premium, proper and respected, but still elegant and classy. So I got that fashion from, from my, my, my dad. And, uh, but I didn't go into fashion because I've always wanted to work for someone like Chanel or Azadine Alaya. Um, I know the workmanship of, um, I see designers as artists and I love the work. Um, and I like people who who goes beyond um, their comfort zone, designers. And um, and I, I but I can't work in fashion because if I work in fashion, I have to go to Paris, and I wanna. And the most important thing in my life is my family. So I just say I can sell heaps of meals and still have fashion in me. You know, so I corporate, incorporate the, 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 both of them. Combination. The yeah, two. combination. Mm. And I did do textile fashion at school and I didn't last because I was sitting in the class and I understand why I got in trouble all the time. Because when the teacher was teaching me for two years um, about colour coordination and how to sew, I was bored because I already knew it. Because my father already taught me at that time, so I couldn't sit still. So instead of getting a good mark, I actually failed in the class because I couldn't. <laughs> I just want to do something. Yeah, I, can I wanted to, I wanted her to teach me a bit more. Yes, and yeah, so I have to say that um, I can have both. That I can still work in food. So I took after my mum's um, um, profession, mm-hmm. but um, I always want to. I love fashion because that's my dad. The perfect, yeah. perfect combination. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before that fashion kind of gives you a place to stand out. Yes. Um, the name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. Yes. When I say that word to you or that term to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? You know, for standout life for me is, uh, in my terms, be, you know, be bold, be, be, be disruptive, be innovative. It's okay to be a squeaky line. Um, but for the right reasons. I don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons. I really want to stand out where I feel I'm useful to the people around me because I, and I always come back to people because people make me happy. People is part of your journey. And you, whether it's my family, my friends, my community. So I want to stand out that way. Yes. Beautiful. It's been so lovely to chat with you and to share your story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alison, for having me. Thank you. I really enjoy it. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.